Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest news, opinions, and training from top building performance, rating, and auditing experts. Here's your host, committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk podcast. The Res Talk podcast, it's our goal to communicate some late breaking news and thoughtful insights into the broad array of topics in the rapidly expanding and changing world of residential energy ratings to the broad array of stakeholders that listen in, the stakeholders from the ResNet ecosystem. So whether you're a housing consumer, rater, builder, realtor, or appraisal, you want to hear about the evolving trends in home energy ratings. I'm your host, Bill Spohn, and I've worked with ResNet and the HVACR on building performance markets for almost 30 years, and I bring some insights into some of the topics that we want to cover through ResTalk. And one of the topics is a topic about attention to detail. Now that covers so many things in, in life in general, certainly in dealing with people and also in dealing with things. So today we're going to learn about how the attention to the detail of proper air sealing can make such a difference in the comfort, performance, and energy efficiency of one of the things we hold so near and dear, the home. And our guest today in this podcast is Charlie Hack. He's the Director of Technical Services for NEMA. That's the North American Insulation Manufacturers Association. His background in architecture and the field work that he's done over the years gives him a great perspective to discuss the multifaceted aspects of moving the concepts of better air sealing into common practice. Now, some, We'll be talking about different factors here today, and sometimes it amounts to not overlooking the big holes because air will find a way. And other times it's a combination of factors that need to be addressed, such as the typical instance where there might be 300 feet of cracks between the ceiling and the top plate in a residential structure. There's some great resources in the show notes that you want to take a look at, including a guide to the top five priority locations for air sealing. And then just in general, if you go to insulationinstitute.org, that's NEMA's web address, you'll find other references and materials such as what builders want from home raters. And also, even just a basic Building Science 101. It's a free download, so take a look. And let's listen in as Charlie gives us an overview of how important it is to get air sealing correct. Welcome back to another episode of Res Talk, where ResNet wishes to engage with the community of ResNet as a whole, all the raters and rating systems, consumers, producers, raters, and the building community at large. So speaking of buildings, a lot of critical things have to happen when a building comes together. And one of the most critical things, as you might know as a listener, is proper air sealing. Today we have Charlie Hack, who's with the North American Institute of Insulation Manufacturers. And I think I just slaughtered that name. So I'm going to let Charlie speak about that for a second. How are you doing today, Charlie? I'm doing well. You're right. It's uh, the North American Insulation Manufacturers Association, also known as NEMA. NEMA. Okay. Your name uh, is a little hard to pronounce, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's right. But we got through that. We got through that together. Tell me a little about NEMA. Who makes up NEMA? What is it? A member organization? How does that work? NEMA is the trade association for manufacturers of fiberglass and mineral insulation products. So all the major insulation manufacturers that you could think of in the U.S. are members of NEMA. So these like Owens Corning, Johns Manville, CertainTeed, and Knopf, and Rockwell. Very good. When was NEMA formed and what sort of brought it together? Why was there a need to do this? Do you know history? Yeah, NEMA's been around for over 80 years now in one form or another. It had different names throughout the years because 
represented the trade association, represented a particular type of manufacturing, not fiberglass and uh, mineral wool at certain times. But in, in the late 1980s, it merged with several other associations to form NEMA, and we've been NEMA ever since. But the main reason it was formed it was to be a single voice for the industry with the federal government and also local governments that, that look to regulate the insulation product. In your role there is technical, technical in nature? That's right. So I have a background in architectural engineering. I went to Penn State, so I'm an engineer. Uh, yeah, so I'm on the uh, technical... Don't be ashamed of that. I'm an engineer too. Please don't. Please don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm on the technical side, uh, along with Charles Cottrell, who is our vice president of technical services. So that's I work with. But we have about eight people here at NEMA. So we're a pretty small organization, so we're lean. But yeah, we do have technical and, and marketing as well as policy backgrounds here at NEMA. And how long you been with NEMA? Just about two years. And uh, prior to coming to NEMA, I was the consulting firm ICF, where I worked. Uh, I spent a good deal of my time on the Energy Star uh, Certified Homes Program on the technical side there. Let's delve into the topic today, which is proper air sealing and how it's critical to different aspects of the home. Did you always believe that? Because <laughs> some people still don't get that notion about air sealing, air sealing, air sealing. Is that something that's always been part of you through your architectural degree, your career, than any of the work you've done before this? Yeah, definitely. So I joined ICF right as version three was being finalized and launched. And it was a key component of that, as well as all the new energy codes, or I should say 2009 ICC and 2012 ICC shortly thereafter, renewed a focus on driving down the infiltration rates in homes. And just, I mean, in school and, and uh, the consulting world and here at NEMA, the, the modeling that I do just shows that energy modeling that I do, shows that air leakage is a large component of energy losses and energy usage, therefore energy usage as well. So it's, it's a key component to bringing down the energy usage in a home. You'd be surprised. Oh, yeah. And I, a lot of practitioners out there are not surprised, but a lot of, I'd say, more consumers are, and perhaps even some builders that aren't tuned into this. There was an interesting thing I noted in the, the topic sentence that we were talking about today, and that's about it, the sort of the loading order that was listed in for the performance benefits that you get, and it's comfort, performance, and energy efficiency. Was that purposeful that they were done in that order, that comfort came first? That's right. Particularly, comfort is, is a large concern with this because it all plays together in terms of air leakage into or out of your home can make particular rooms or areas of the home unusable for parts of the year. But the home works together as an entire system. So once you get the air tightness right and have your HVAC system sized properly and distributed well without a whole lot of leakage. The entire home can has the opportunity then to become comfortable while saving energy on the back. And then that leads to the performance aspect. And you're talking about the energy performance, the durability, air quality. How do you define performance? Yeah, as far as performance goes, having the air barrier aligned with the weather barrier is a critical aspect in terms of bulk water management, as well as any other moisture issues related to insulation products. So you have to have that air barrier aligned with the insulation products for everything to perform as designed. So it's a technical issue, technical detail, and that's your background. And so how do you communicate this? Is, are there resources? Are there trainings? How does this word get out? So in terms of resources for contractors and raiders to help their builders get to lower infiltration levels, NEMA released a guide on five priority air sealing locations. Now, this guide's focused on builders and homes that are already 
relatively tight in kind of the five to seven ACH 50 range. And what areas to go to next to get down to three ACH 50? Because as you, we didn't explicitly mention, but in the 2012 IACC and 2015 and 2018, there's a mandatory requirement in, in the northern climate zones to get down to three ACH 50, at least in the model. And that's a step up from the 2009 IACC, which had target of seven. And there were even requirements there that allowed visual testing or visual inspection rather than actually testing the air leakage of the home. It's a big step up. In the 3ACH50, is it mandatory test in the model code? In the model code, yes, that, that is a mandatory test. And you have to be at or better than 3ACH50. How well is that going over, the change in the code? Because you must have to stay in, on top of that because that's part of your mission for NEMA, correct? Yeah, that's right. So at NEMA, I... One of the other things we do on the technical side and policy side it's interlinked is, is monitor code adoption because obviously it's important to our members that new model codes get adopted out in the states so that they have better thermal envelopes for consumers because the more recent energy codes have improved uh, insulation requirements uh, within them. But as we're monitoring the codes, uh, obviously we track other efficiency-related items because we care about all the efficiency measures in the home, not just the insulation. So one of the things that commonly gets paired back when it gets adopted at the state or local level is that three ACH50 mandatory requirements. So several states that have adopted the more recent codes have moved it to five ACH50 or made five ACH50 the mandatory level, but three is still prescriptive. Or some of them have even moved it up to seven just based upon uh, the builder feedback within the state. So it's a common thing that gets paired back or phased in over time. Even if it's phased in over time or paired back for that particular code cycle, it's possibly something that's coming in the next code cycle when that state or local jurisdiction adopts the code. So it's something out there that builders and raiders need to be aware of because it will likely come their way in the coming years, if not already. Is there a particular resource or a link I could share in the show notes regarding the NEMA paper you just mentioned? Yeah, so I can send a link to our five-priority air ceiling location piece. So just like a quick overview, it sounds like it's starting to get a little bit into the weeds when you go from five or seven to three. What, any highlights from that, the, the five priorities there? Yeah, so this was research done by Owens Corning. They wrote two papers, Characterization of Air Leakage in Residential Structures, Part 1 and Part 2. And they identified over a dozen areas, but some of them were, were less consequential than others. But the number one location is air sealing the top plate to the drywall uh, in homes that have vented attics. So there are a lot of small cracks where that top plate meets the drywall and it goes across the entire attic, especially if you have multiple rooms on that upper level or could be the main level of a home. It's one story. Uh, but there could be over 300 feet of cracks in a typical single family home that would need to be sealed. 300 feet? Yeah, yeah. It adds up quickly when you have rooms. Sounds like a crack epidemic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in order to seal that, there's, there's two approaches uh, available to seal the top plate to the attic drywall. So you can either seal it from above, typically with like a one-part foam. Uh, that's obviously that's a lot of labor to do that. Somebody walking around up in the attic could be, depending on the pitch of the roof, there could be not a lot of room to get there, get around there. But you can also seal it before the drywall goes up. And there's several products that do that. But if you get a kind of a mechanical caulk, something that's a little more uh, pliable, not just regular caulk, you can apply that to the top plate prior to the drywall going up. But there's some other proprietary products that are being marketed for this purpose out there as well. I have heard of people using things like sill sealer, like a foam sill sealer at that location, but 
sometimes it's, unless your drywall crew understands what's going on, sometimes they'll tear that down because they don't want that affecting their drywall. They don't want to make anything pop there. The alignment and stuff and the finish. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned Owens Coring Research did two papers. Are these fairly technical papers? Are those also accessible or available? So they are available online, but they are fairly technical. So in the five priority air sealing locations piece that NAMA put together under its Insulation Institute branding, we tried to boil that down for raters, the average user, the five most high impact ones to understand what those locations are, as well as what the impact of air sealing those locations would be. So that top plate to attic, attic drywall that I just mentioned, that based on the research as the potential to reduce infiltration by up to 1.6 ACH50. So that's not insignificant, the scale thing. So if you were already at five, that would bring you pretty close to three if this was an area that you weren't addressing very well. Interesting. Any others sort of come to mind, top of mind? Maybe one other from the top five? Yeah, sure. Another one that's very interesting is uh, sealing the duct boot to the finished surface or the subfloor. This would be for homes that have unconditioned attics or unconditioned basements and crawl spaces. So most homes have ductwork in the attic space with vents that come down through the ceiling. So you have a grill in your ceiling. But oftentimes around that duct boot, even though it may be sealed to the ductwork above up in the attic, but the duct boot itself won't be sealed to the drywall that's on that ceiling. Uh, and that's an opportunity for air leakage to occur between the attic and the conditioned space. So, and you could have eight or 10 of these on a, on an upper floor if it's a single story home in that single story home. So that can contribute to uh, overall infiltration as well. And in the own scoring study, they had, at least in the study they did, it was 0.2 ACH50 total for doing the duck boots in the test room. I'm going to speculate here, but I think it might have something to do with the airflow and sort of the pressures created. Are you familiar with that? Is it the Kawanda effect? Is that, I'm getting real technical here, really grasping perhaps at straws, but that it actually sort of creates like a little eddy current or a vacuum, which helps to pull air out of that interstitial space. Right. So it does do that in practice, but per the Owens Corning study, they didn't study it as an actively running HVAC system in their study. That's literally the values just from the cracks created by the duct boot not being sealed to the drywall in that case. That'd be very interesting. Yeah, it's pro- it could be higher, as you said, it could induce different flows if the HVAC system's running. That could likely have higher infiltration rates or you're losing highly conditioned air rather than just the air that's in the space, et cetera. So you could say that the Owens Corning study might be a conservative estimate. So ResNet, of course, is residential energy rating systems. Are there other aspects that NEMA gets involved with in terms of commercial or other types of property structures, that kind of thing? Yeah, so we do get involved in the commercial energy code adoption and development. And that covers a a wide range of buildings, obviously a diverse set of uses in the commercial space, but it also includes metal buildings. And I know ASHRAE, which writes the standards for energy efficiency for commercial buildings, is ASHRAE is looking to update their requirements regarding infiltration for metal buildings in particular. So ASHRAE has done some research uh, related to that to show that various products can meet the new ASHRAE requirements for uh, metal buildings. One of the other things I sort of cruise around your website there and for NEMA, and it mentioned the advocacy and green certification programs. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the different programs and sort of what you do in terms of advocacy? Yeah, so we, in the development process of some green programs, we may get involved. But more recently, we haven't been so much, but we do 
encourage the adoption of uh, programs such as Passive House. We monitor the activities of those requirements and encourage the adoption of Passive House standards, as an example. We also, it's not something I do, but other people here at NEMA do some advocacy on the Hill uh, related to legislation that may include incentives for green programs or requirements for green programs, certification programs, but there have not been a lot of movement on anything related to that in recent memory. Is there any interaction with consumers specifically or anything consumer facing that you do? Yeah. So on the NEMA website in particular, we do offer resources to consumers about different insulation types, where they can be used, et cetera. So the NEMA website includes kind of two sides. One side is for consumers and the other side is for contractors or, or more technical folks that want to get resources. Yeah. So we do have some info for consumers on our website. Do you want to give that web address just so the listeners can hear that? And Sure. Uh, it's insulationinstitute.org. And, and I imagine if you look for NEMA, you'd find it too, maybe indirectly. That's right. Actually, if you Google NEMA, NEMA and insulation, you'll come up with the Insulation Institute website. Got it. Where would we find you, like out in the wild? What do you do? I mean, you must travel because there's so much to cover in this great country of ours uh, on this topic. Yeah, so a couple places. Obviously, whenever there are uh, code changes at the state or sometimes local level, it's a large enough city or municipality, we'll often be there at the code proceedings to advocate for, at the base level, the next or most improved model code. If not that, obviously things that affect insulation and the use of insulation. So we've been involved in states like California, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, which recently moved to the 2018 ICC. We're involved in the code proceedings and hearings that occur for those. So I'll often do analyses that show the payback periods for consumers to show that, hey, this is cost effective to the consumer, even if it's another $500 or $1,000 to move to this next code. Even if it's rolled into a mortgage, they're actually getting more money back in the savings than their increased mortgage amount. So sharing analyses and reports like that to the commissions and committees that adopt have the decisions to, to adopt certain aspects of the code or the whole code there. So that's at the state level. And then I also am involved in the development of codes at the model national level, national model code level through the IECC. So we're working right now on the 2021 IECC. We don't know what will be in it exactly, but NEMA has done analyses and helped submit proposals through a coalition of energy advocates and other industry groups to advance the energy code in the 2021 IECC. Sometimes they say, like, where legislation, policy, codes get written, it's like watching sausage being made. <laughs> have you watched sausage being made? <laughs> I have. <laughs> Pretty similar. Yeah, the, particularly the model code hearings are, are you're there from 8 a.m. to beyond 8 p.m. In, in one day, and it goes on for a week and a half talking about code changes pretty much continuously with hour breaks for lunch. Uh, and there's a lot of course training going on and people supporting each other's proposals or going against the other proposals to improve or roll back the code. So, yeah, it's a lot of hard work. It, it sounds intense and very detailed and sort of mind bending. So 
we did talk about this, and it is the overall context of NEMA for new construction, or does existing construction play into this? Definitely both new and existing. And we found that obviously working with the rating community, uh, most of, a lot of the work they do is is new construction related. So a lot of the marketing or the analysis or kind of resources that NEMA provides does focus a bit more on the new construction market, but we do also provide guidance on existing installations. So if you were to go to the consumer part of our website, it talks a little bit more about getting a home energy assessment or how much insulation do I need based upon you know, if I measure how much I have now, how much should I put in and preventing moisture issues and, and health and safety related to insulation products. Any other resources for the ResTalk listeners, which would be more the technical builder, rater type? Do you ever do presentations out at the ResNet conference? Is that something that... Yeah. So I actually recently gave a presentation on these five priority air sealing locations. Other resources that we have available, there was... NEMA also gave a presentation on health legacy of fiberglass insulation and a lot of the great research that goes into tracking tracking the positive health story of fiberglass and mineral insulation products. So that was another presentation at ResNet that was given by our general counsel here at NEMA. On the Insulation Institute website, we have a blog that has postings just about every week throughout the year with topics that are relevant to the Raider community. So we recently came up with a piece uh, related to uh, sprinkler alternatives. So fiberglass and mineral insulation as an alternative to sprinkler systems. So we'll often release uh, resources like that and uh, have a blog post to describe more uh, what's going on. That's a great blog to follow because it talks about relevant items. Another one that was done recently, it's the best time to air seal, what time in the building process do you air seal? And we'll often have a guest that we bring on to, to talk about what they do or describe what, what a report or something else kind of reduce down the important aspects of something that might be more complicated. And then the reader can go on to that more detailed source or you know, comment or have a conversation with other people on, on our site. I'm sure there's a hands-on and technique aspect to doing proper air sealing. Is that a challenge or is, are the techniques pretty well known or where do you recommend people, builders go to make sure their crews are trained correctly? So as far as the number one key thing before I you even get down to five or seven ACH50 is, is a properly installed and continuous and taped air barrier on the walls of the home, the exterior walls of the home. So it's a house wrap like Tyvek or other, other products similar to that. That is kind of the number one thing that you can point out and train your trades on just to make sure that that product's continuous, overlapped, and taped. And then after that, the details get a little more tricky down to individual items. So, I mean, in our guide, the, at least the two areas we mentioned uh, on this call, talks a little bit more about where exactly to seal. And as far as the products to use, they often have the product on site already. Caulk can provide a seal for silicone caulk can provide a seal in most situations. But there are other things like mastic or one-part spray foam that contractors can have on hand to seal these locations. And as a raider, they can help the builder time out when this air sealing should occur, as well as who should be doing it, to kind of give responsibility to a particular trade, whether it's a framer or someone that's coming into drywall, which one would want to take on the air sealing of the home, or if not the raider themselves, if they want to be on the site more often, or that's part of their contract. And have you witnessed any cases where 
this wasn't done correctly. Because I mean, if, if you got to talk about it, that means it's not common practice and commonplace. Anything like that, maybe from your research or architectural or some of the things you did beforehand. Yeah, yeah, definitely out in the field. When I was at ICF, I got out in the field quite a bit because they ran um, or they still run a lot of utility programs, utility incentive programs that give money to builders that are meeting performance targets. So yeah, I've seen it a lot. And oftentimes it's blocking the big holes in the home. First, so uh, things that are overlooked, like where a garage meets the main part of the house. Yeah, the, the wall might be drywalled and mud and mudded and uh, everything might be sealed up. The door has got a good gasket on it. But above that area, the floor system above each bay between the floor joists isn't blocked. So you have airflow coming right into the floor, in the first and second floor, and infiltration there that would make the space uncomfortable. Uh, that's something I saw relatively often out there. Also, uh, unsealed utility chases that connect all the way from the basement to an attic, just putting a piece of OSB or plywood and then sealing around it and cutting it to fit goes a long way to air seal those spaces. So those, those are probably the two most common things that I saw out there that are pretty big holes. Yeah, we were talking about sealing all these cracks, but if you have a large hole like that, that's going to really degrade your infiltration rate. Yeah, just because you can't see it doesn't mean air won't find it. That's right, yep. We covered a lot of this topic area about proper air sealing and its critical nature, critical aspect to comfort, performance, and energy efficiency. Any kind of summary thoughts you want to give us here? Sure. So, yeah, the key is that there isn't one single thing that you're going to do to get down to 3ACH50. It's a combination of air sealing locations that you're going to have to focus on and work with your builder on to get down to three. So the guide that NEMA produced, the five priority air sealing locations, just identify the key ones that will help you get down to three ACH50. Of course, you have to start uh, by filling the big holes before you even get to those priority air sealing locations because air will find a way in even if you don't think it's a leakage point. Oh, and the Energy Stove Star Program has a great resource, a great checklist. The Raider Field Checklist doesn't have pictures in it, but it identifies key areas even without measuring the infiltration of the home, you know you're going to bring it down to a pretty good level if you hit those key areas that are identified in the Raider field checklist of the Energy Star program. It sort of reminds me of a song, Love Will Find a Way, This Is Air Will Find a Way. And this is sort of a negative thing, though. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually quoting what you said, air will find a way. So there's a lot of vigilance and a lot of forethought. And like you said, it's a combination of things. But the raider, the builder, the contractor must be aware of so many things and then look for them. And it may be a few of them on this particular job site, but it may be a different ones on a different job site. So that's exactly a lot of right. attention to detail. Yeah. It's the little stuff. Very good. Well, really enjoyed speaking with you today, Charlie, and hope you continue to push this mission of getting code adoption and getting better air sealing done out there in the world. And we'll certainly be talking about it more on ResTalk and sharing it more with the people out there in our ResTalk ecosystem. Thank you very much. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the ResTalk podcast. If you like what you heard today and you've not yet subscribed, please consider doing so by typing ResTalk, that's R-E-S-T-A-L-K, into the search bar of any of the typical podcast apps. This way, as a subscriber, you'll get the downloads of the episodes as soon as they launch. You can also listen in your browser by following links at resnet.us slash professional or subscribing to the ResNet newsletter, and they're always very good about sharing the new podcast as they launch. If you're a pro in the building market, you want to go to resnet.us slash professional to learn more, or if you're a consumer, resnet.us, you'll see the consumer link there. 
want to share with you a quote for the day. And this quote is from John Wooden. John is the UCLA award-winning basketball coach who won 10 NCAA national championships in a 12-year period as the head coach of UCLA, including a record seven in a row. Let's see what John has to say that relates to this episode. It's the little details that are vital, things that make big things happen. So let's go out there and make some big things happen in terms of home energy ratings and the residential building markets as in general, and that would be by doing proper air sealing. It's such a critical thing. Take care, everyone, and we hope you have you back again at the Res Talk Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Res Talk Podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn, produced by Brian Orr, and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for ResTalk. If you are willing, a review on iTunes of the podcast app will help others find the show and would be very much appreciated. We look forward to talking again soon on ResTalk.